would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Be in chapter 3, reading verses 21 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You that You have shown Yourself to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you have made a way to justify the ungodly, that you have made a way for guilty sinners to be reckoned righteous before you. Lord, as we look now on this great doctrine and we think hard on the issue of sola fide and faith alone, We pray, Father, that our eyes and our gaze will be turned to Christ. They will be turned to His merit, be turned to what He has done, what He has wrought in His work on the cross and in His righteous living. God, thank You. Thank You for making a way for guilty sinners like us to be reconciled to You. We thank You for this great doctrine. We thank You for Your providence in making it known even through the Reformation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, as many of you know, no doubt, uh, Tuesday marks the anniversary of the beginning of one of the most important events in the history of the world. And I say that with no hyperbole or exaggeration intended. In the providence of God, there are few events in history that have shaped the world more dramatically than the Protestant Reformation. Western civilization as we know it, and even the American experiment, would not have come to be apart from the Protestant Reformation. And it all began with a monk who read his Bible and was disturbed by what he saw, especially when comparing it to what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching at the time. So it was on October 31st, the year 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That is the moment that historians recognize as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now that moment, unintentionally by Luther, but providentially by God, set off a domino effect of events, not just in in Luther's life, but all through Europe and eventually the world, 
as the doctrines of the Reformation began to spread like wildfire. Now, we as a church are a church that stands firmly in the Protestant tradition, meaning we stand in the Protestant doctrines that came out of the Reformation. We stand in protest to Rome. We affirm the doctrines that surfaced in protest to Rome. But the question I have for all of us is, do we know why that is? Do we know what it means to be a Protestant? Is the Reformation still important for us today? Or is it, as some declare, over? Well, I want to explore those questions as we look at the the key doctrine of the entire movement, sola fide. As historians and theologians have looked back on the, on the Reformation, the key issues and doctrines that came out of it have been summarized for us in what we call the five solas of the Reformation. Most of you know and love and cherish these doctrines, but for those of you for whom this is new, these are Latin terms that summarize the heart of Reformed theology. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the final and sufficient authority for all of life and faith. Sola Fide, salvation is through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. And Sola Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. The implications of each one of these doctrines are huge in the way that we understand the gospel and the Christian faith. But of these five, two of these doctrines surfaced in a particularly important way and were central to the whole of the Reformation. The first is sola scriptura. That was the foundational issue of the Reformation. And for those of you who were around a couple of years ago, you may remember that we focused our attention on sola scriptura that Reformation Sunday. And Sola Scriptura being the foundational issue was a question of authority. Is Scripture alone our final authority and rule of faith, or is the tradition of the church and the popes and the councils on equal ground and equal authority as the Roman Catholic Church held and still holds to this day? And whether it was Luther in Germany, or Zwingli in Switzerland, or Tyndale in England, or Calvin in Geneva, or Knox in Scotland, and many, many more, all of them became convinced of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority, our infallible rule of faith. And for that reason, our doctrine in theology is drawn from and regulated by the scriptures. The church and tradition does not and cannot add any revelation beyond that which is written. And with that foundation laid and the issue of authority defined, it paved the way to look into the scriptures and see what they teach about the most significant question that every man must reckon with. How can a person be right with God? And that question, how the Scripture answers that question, is not found in, in popes or tradition or council. It's found 
by faith and faith alone. The answer to that question from Scripture gave rise to the second most significant issue of the Reformation, and that is sola fide, by faith alone, which is shorthand to speak of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When speaking of the importance of this issue, the centrality of this issue, Martin Luther described the doctrine of justification by faith as the article of faith that decides whether the church stands or falls. John Calvin said justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. Later on, Charles Spurgeon said any church that puts in place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church. And R.C. Sproul said if you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. So this is, this is not an issue that we can afford to get wrong. If this doctrine truly carries the weight that these men say that it does, and it undoubtedly does, then it is not an area in which we can be confused. Because the reality is, this, this is the heart of the gospel right here. In a very real sense, the recovery of this issue was the recovery of the gospel in the Reformation. So with that in mind, I want to do three things today. I want to establish what the issue of justification is, what creates the need for justification. Then I want us to look at what Scripture says on this matter, how it's resolved in Scripture. And then I want us to finish our time by considering the distinctions between Roman Catholics and Protestants so that we can understand what we are protesting by being Protestant. And my hope is that all of us will see the glory of what was recovered. The Reformation truly was a battle for the gospel. And the only way that we can truly have peace with God is through justification by faith alone. The Roman system robs its adherents of that possibility. And I hope you will see that with clarity today. So let's start with just establishing the issue itself. What is the issue of justification? What creates the need for justification? Well, as I already stated, the question at hand is the age-old question for all of sinful mankind. Even the book of Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, gave voice to man's ultimate question in Job 9-2 when he said, How can a man be in the right before God? That is the question. And justification is after answering the question of how it is that a sinner can obtain right standing before God to be justified. How can a person who is a violator of God's law and a sinner by nature avoid condemnation from a holy God who is the judge of all mankind? As David said in Psalm 113, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The obvious answer to that rhetorical question is nobody. Nobody could stand. But we must ask, well, how, how is it then that God deals with anyone not according to their iniquities? If God forgives sin 
And, and we know that he does. He tells us as much all through the scripture. But what, on what basis does he do that? Does he just overlook it? Does he just wink at it? Does he sweep it under the rug and pretend it did not happen? Or treat it as if it is no big deal? Many think that's how God operates. That he just automatically forgives sin when he is asked. If you just ask him, or perhaps if you just repent, if you just confess, he will forgive your sin. And you can move on in peace with God. But the problem with that idea, on any level, is that without proper grounds, it's actually evil. It would be evil for God to just forgive sin and move on. Because it is contrary to justice. As God said repeatedly in the law, justice is never to be perverted nor denied. And to help us see this, if you think about it, take what happened just, just last week with the mass shooting in Maine. Eighteen dead, many other wounded. Had that man been apprehended alive and brought before the judge and been acquitted of all charges on the basis of his apology or his repentance, he was just allowed to walk, there would be an uprising. There would be an outcry. Not just in Maine, but all over the world, there would be a cry for justice, and everyone would rightly call that judge evil because justice was not served. Proverbs 24 says, Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by the people and abhorred by the nations. We innately know that justice is right and needed, and to pervert justice is evil. Because it is in keeping with God's nature. God is a just God. Therefore, God cannot just forgive sin in some kind of baseless manner. Even if you repent of your sin, you turn away from your sin, that gives God no basis to forgive the sin that you have actually and already committed without violating His own perfections and His own holiness and His own justice. So then how can God be both just and forgiving? The problem is actually even seen in the way God reveals himself to Moses. When Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, and the Lord passed by him, showing him his backside, and he pronounced who he is, God said this in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is the God who is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How do we put these things together? It's actually easier to understand how His justice will by no means clear the guilty than it is to understand the basis on which He is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
the basis for his mercy. But most certainly, how can he do both? How can he maintain his justice and justify, forgive guilty sinners? This is the the conundrum of Scripture, if you will. This is the conundrum of mankind. As we all know in our consciences that we are guilty, how then can we have peace with God? And that is the conundrum that can only be reconciled in Jesus Christ. And that's what this doctrine of sola fide is addressing, as we will see. And unquestionably, when you survey the New Testament, you will find that this is, in reality, the central fact of its message. This right here. As we turn now to the Scriptures, I want us to look specifically at this passage from Romans 3. We're going to reference some other passages, but I want us to focus here because it directly answers the question of how God can be both just and the justifier of ungodly sinners. Now, this paragraph, just this paragraph, was regarded by Luther to be the chief point and center, not only of the book of Romans, but of the entire Bible. Leon Morris stated that he believed this might be the most important single paragraph ever written. And I would agree. So we're just going to do a quick walkthrough of this passage to see this so that we can inform our understanding of justification from the Scripture. Now, up until this point in the book of Romans, Paul has been laboring to get here, to set this up. Chapters 1 through 3 are meant to show the universal sinfulness of all of mankind. He very carefully demonstrates the unwillingness of all of mankind to honor God as God or to give Him thanks as the Creator. Further, he shows that even the Jews, the covenantal people of God, who had been given the law, who had received God's divine standard, are also under the wrath of God. Because though they have the law of God, they did not keep the law of God. Because for sinful humanity, the law does not provide the power for obedience. It rather only reveals the sinfulness of the human heart. And so this is why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. And then he goes through all of these Old Testament quotations to just show the utter sinfulness of all of humanity, leading to his final summary of chapter 1 through 3, right here in verses 19 and 20. Look what he says. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So those who have the law are no better off. They are in the same boat as the rest of the world, held accountable to God. Why? Verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is is bringing his, his readers, both Jew and Gentile, to the place of saying, well then how then can we be right with God? How can we, can we be justified in his sight? 
Gentiles are perishing without the law as their sinfulness just knows no bounds, and Jews are condemned under the law as they boast in their self-righteousness while constantly violating the very law that they boast in. For sinful humanity, it does not matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, the sinfulness of the human heart cannot be stopped. Not even by possession of God's divine law. The whole world is guilty and accountable to God. See, this is a courtroom scene that Paul is setting up. God is the judge, and the evidence against mankind is irrefutable. How then is it possible for man to be justified in his sight? That's the question. And when Paul says justified, that is a Greek term, a legal term that means declared righteous. How can the guilty be declared righteous before the court bench of God? Which brings us up to the passage we are looking at today. That is what the but now in verse 21 is all about. But now, in the coming of Christ, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, what does that mean? The idea here is that the saving righteousness of God, or the righteous standard of God, which must be obtained to be in right standing with God. Under the old covenant, that righteousness was shown in the law. As Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Those who can perfectly keep the law without breaking it, even on one point, even in the heart, will stand before God justified, declared righteous. But as already discussed, as Paul went on to show, that's nobody. Nobody can attain the righteousness of God via the law. But that wasn't even the point of the law. The law was not given to give sinners a pathway to obtain a righteous standing before God. It was given to show sinners that they can't obtain a righteous standing before God. It was always meant to point to the greater need, a need outside of oneself. And Paul even states that here in the verse into verse 21, he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it was always pointing forward to this reality. Meaning, the old covenant and the law was always pointing forward to the need of the new covenant and of grace. It was always pointing forward to Christ. It was grace and Christ were not plan B. That's what the law is building towards. And that's what has now been revealed. The righteousness of God has now been manifested, revealed apart from the law, which is what? Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God is now obtainable not through law-keeping, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe meaning both Jew and Gentile. Whether you are a part of the covenant people of God or not, it is for all who believe. As a side note, almost always in the book of Romans, when you see Paul says all, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, all 
types of people, which he goes on to say, verse 22, For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. All Jews, all Gentiles, Gentiles without the law, Jews under the law, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet all who are justified, verse 24, are justified by His grace as a gift. No one is now or has ever been justified outside of grace. There is no other way. Justification only comes as a gift of grace, the sola gratia. That's what that is all about. That means that, the, that grace, God's grace, is the sole source of all justification. Any system that holds out an alternative to grace is heresy. Grace is the only source of justification. But notice, the question of how still remains at this point. What are the grounds of this act? Because God's justice in doing this is still in question. Which is why Paul doesn't stop there. Look what he says, verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is it. These are the grounds of justification right here. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Christ alone, solus Christus. God set forth His own Son as a propitiation by His blood, meaning His death, His sacrifice. We've talked about this word before, propitiation. I hope it becomes one of your favorite words, because everything has been building towards this singular word, because it directly deals with man's greatest problem, which is the wrath of God. Because that's what justice demands, and that's what has been building this entire section. It began in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the, tr the truth. And then Paul goes on in chapter 2, verse 5, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Wrath is coming against all sin. There is a day of wrath on the calendar now. And the fact that we do not see it in its full fury right now is because it's being stored up for that day. But it's coming, which is terrifying. And then he makes it clear again in chapter 2, verse 8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is what God's justice and God's holiness demands. And for that reason, He set forth His Son as a propitiation. That's what propitiation is. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. When Jesus died for our sins, that is what He was doing. He was paying the penalty for what we have done which was God's wrath and fury 
against our wickedness. It was poured out on Christ rather than us. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God did not wink at your sin. He does not overlook it. He does not sweep it under the rug. But rather for those who believe, he he takes our sin and he places it on his son and he punishes our sin in Christ rather than us. Hallelujah. And then look at verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is is it. In the divine wisdom of God, This is how the conundrum of Scripture, the conundrum of mankind is rectified. This is how God was able to pass over the sins of old. Do you ever wonder why you can read the Old Testament and you look at the the so-called heroes of the faith that we speak of and you find that they're not all that different from us? They're sinners too. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheat. Moses killed a guy. David was an adulterer and a murderer. The question is, is God playing favorites? How does he pass over these sins without punishment? Is God righteous? And the cross emphatically says, yes, he is. This is how God is both just while justifying ungodly sinners. His justice was served in Christ. How can God be the God who is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? The cross. The place where both justice and mercy are seen simultaneously in their purest form. The place where wrath and forgiveness are found to be friends working together towards the same end, the justification of the ungodly. And the way that this is received is through faith in Jesus Christ, through God's Messiah, the one who took it all on our behalf. And that was true before the cross, and it's true after the cross. As Paul goes on in chapter 4 to illustrate in the life of both Abraham and David, In fact, turn over there with me. Look at at chapter 4, verse 1. We'll just read this section. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, they didn't have the full-fledged revelation of who the Messiah is or how all of this would unfold, but they had the promises of God with respect to His coming, and they put their faith in that. They trusted in God, and therefore they trusted in the coming of His Messiah and the coming cross. And that trust, that faith, was counted to them as righteousness. The righteousness of God had only ever has only ever been by grace through faith. It was then and it is now. Now the question is, as we we think back on the Reformation, and we think about this doctrinal distinctive of sola fide that we hold to, we need to ask, how is this uniquely Protestant theology? If this is, as we heard, the central issue of the Reformation, and it is the central issue of the Christian faith, of the very gospel, where do we depart from Rome? How is this a protest against Roman Catholic doctrine? Now, some want to say, well, Rome believes in justification by works, and we believe in justification by faith, and that's what divides us. That is, that is simply not true. They have the book of Romans 2 and the book of Galatians, which is almost entirely about this issue, they can read Paul's conclusion in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. They reject the idea that man has the ability to earn their justification apart from faith and grace. And if you say to a Roman Catholic that you reject their system on the basis that they believe in justification by works rather than by faith, they will tell you you do not understand what they believe. So where is the issue? The issue rages over this word alone. Rome is happy to affirm justification by faith, but the word alone is what the Reformers brought to the table in order to draw a clear and distinct line between the two systems. Because these are radically different systems at the very heart of the gospel. Rome has a different gospel. We need to be clear on that. And even they recognize that. After the Reformation began, Rome started a counter-Reformation, a movement to fight back against the doctrines that were being established by the Reformers. And that movement eventually led to what is called the Council of Trent, It was a council that gathered in order to establish what Rome officially believes on the issues that were being surfaced by the Reformation. And it has never been redacted, nor will it. And in that council, they emphatically declared that anyone who embraces a system of justification by faith alone is anathema, is damned. You're using Paul's language from Galatians chapter 1. Historically, they have viewed our gospel, justification by faith alone, as a damnable gospel because it is that different from what they put forth. And I would encourage you just to go read the, the, the canons of the Council of Trent. It's eye-opening. But this is because our systems are radically different. In their view, justification and sanctification are not separate issues. 
when they were building their doctrine of justification, they argued that in order for God to truly count one as righteous, they must be made actually righteous. They cannot be just declared righteous. To them, they say, this is to create a legal fiction in which one is called righteous who is not truly righteous. And for that reason, they believe justification to be a process that happens on the basis of sanctification. So the idea is when one is baptized, usually as an infant, they receive the sacrament of baptism. It is then that they receive the grace of God as a free gift purchased for them by the merit of Christ. And that grace is infused into one's being by which they may become actually righteous in and of themselves as they grow into the righteousness of God and live out their justification by their faith. By this grace given to them, they must obtain true righteousness in order to obtain final justification and be granted entrance into heaven. And this is where the doctrine of purgatory comes in for them. Because they need a place to go for people to go that is neither hell nor heaven after death to achieve this final state of righteousness where they can be purged of their sin for thousands upon thousands of years until they are actually righteous. However, at any time in life, they can commit what is called a mortal sin and lose their justification. And they can be on the way to hell, even with their faith intact. Faith does not matter. But the sacrament of penance, confession, can restore their justification as their priest absolves them of their sin. That is their system of justification. To summarize this, Catholic justification is a process tied to sanctification, not a singular event or a declaration in time. It is an infusion of grace by which one may achieve their own actual righteousness before God, and it is given by the instrumental means of baptism and confession. That's their system of justification. It is not by faith alone. It is by faith and living it out in cooperation with the grace of God. So then God's wrath is ultimately and finally satisfied not by Christ's atoning work alone, but also by our keeping our justification through the pursuit of good deeds in cooperation with the grace of God. It's not a trusting in Christ alone. It's a trusting in Christ and one of the good deeds. One's keeping the sacraments in order to avoid sin. And for that reason, one's ultimate peace with God is never guaranteed until they actually make it to heaven. And, and they know this. That is why they speak of assurance, of claims of assurance as sins of presumption. None of them will ever speak in the language of having been saved nor do they have any assurance that they will make it to heaven and avoid God's wrath. This is why prior, prior to his change of understanding, Luther was absolutely tormented by this system because he understood its implications. He took it seriously. 
And for that reason, he would spend hours upon hours in confession trying to achieve absolution for every rogue thought or word or deed. But no matter what, no matter, despite being one of the the most pious and devoted monks of his order, if not the most, his conscience just killed him. And he was terrified of the wrath of God. In fact, his spiritual mentor asked him, Martin, don't you love God? And he answered in a moment of honesty, love God? Sometimes I hate him. That's what the system had done to him. The question is, where is this system of justification in the Bible? It leaves one without assurance, no true knowledge of their peace with God, and reliance not just upon Christ, but their own cooperation with God. And the answer is, just like purgatory, it is nowhere in the Scripture. It was developed by the tradition of the church through Catholic theologians over time. Nowhere in Scripture is justification defined like this. You cannot come within a thousand miles of these conclusions by exegetically walking through the Scripture. It's just not there. You need tradition, the tradition of the church to get there. And this is why the publishing of the Greek New Testament and the doctrine of sola scriptura was so important. Because it allowed the Reformers to go back to the Bible, to the original language, not the Latin Vulgate, and to see it as their ultimate authority, where they were able to test what had been developed by the church according to the Scriptures. And with the freedom to reject it, they did just that. They came to passages like Romans 3 and 4, and they found that God has set forth a very different path of justification and a very different gospel. Starting with just the the very definition of the word. The Greek word for justify does not mean to make one righteous inherently. It means to declare them righteous. It's a law court term. Its antithesis is to condemn. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. And that's what's going on in the book of Romans. As this court is established before the, the bench of Almighty God. It's on the basis of our justification that Paul is able to say in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification has eliminated condemnation forever. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No caveats to that. It's done. And this has been achieved in two main ways. Ways. There's two components to our justification that you need to understand. The first is what we saw very clearly in Romans chapter 3. It's also in 1 John 2 and 1 John 4 that Christ was set forth by God to be the propitiation for our sins. That means the wrath of God is satisfied, it's done, it is eternally appeased. There is no more wrath for your sins, past, present, and future. On the cross, Christ took all of our sin upon Himself. And He paid the penalty we deserved. He purchased our forgiveness forever. And this was the very promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He doesn't say unless you commit a mortal sin and then I'll remember that one and I'll place my wrath back upon you. No, Christ paid for all 
of our sins, the wrath of God has been satisfied. If he did not, we have no hope. And no priest can absolve us of that. The truth is, if we need absolution from a priest for any reason, then Christ's sacrifice was insufficient. It did not do its job. But it wasn't. Our sins were paid for in full, which is why he says, Tetelestai on the cross. It is finished. It's done. But that's not all. There is a second component to our justification. Not only did Christ purchase our pardon, but he also granted to us his righteousness. Those who are justified have been given the righteousness of Christ, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, that is not inherent to us, which is in direct contradiction to Rome's view. We are saved not by our righteousness, but by Christ's passive righteousness, His passive obedience, which is death on the cross, and His active obedience, which was the life that He lived in perfect submission to His Father. This is why Jesus said when He got baptized, I must do this in order to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law on behalf of His people. As Paul says, again, Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we need more than forgiveness. We need perfect righteousness. A righteous that you could never achieve given billions of years in purgatory. But in Christ you have been given both. This is what we call justification by imputation as opposed to infusion. To impute means to reckon or to count as it's actually the same idea that Paul uses with Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God and it was counted. It was imputed to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. On the cross, there was double imputation. All the sins of Christ's sheep were imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to us. It was the great exchange. Christ was treated as the sinner and in exchange we are treated as Christ in perfect righteousness before God. Again, as Paul said so beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we are now the righteousness of God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, even though we still sin, He sees us in the righteous standing of His Son because we are in His Son. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is what Luther called in Latin, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and sinner. That's who we are in Christ. And how is this accessed? Through faith. As Paul said in 
3.22. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The instrumental cause of our justification is not baptism or penance. It is faith. By faith, we lay a hold of all that Christ has done for us. His merit is what justifies us. And even that, even our faith, is a work of the Holy Spirit, a gift from God so that no one could boast, not even in our faith. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't even boast in your faith. It is all of grace working through faith. And in that moment that one believes upon Christ, God declares them justified eternally. You cannot lose it. So justification is distinct from sanctification. Justification is the work of God, no cooperation of man. You blend those two and you end up with a system based on human effort in some form or another. Now that is not to say that sanctification is not necessary. As John Calvin said, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. Meaning all true faith will lead to conformity to Christ. This is what the book of James is talking about. He's fighting against dead faith. True faith will produce good works. The fruit of justification is sanctification. But those two things are not the same and should never be blended or confused. Justification is a once-for-all declaration by God for those who lay a hold of Christ by faith. For those who trust in Him and not themselves, in Christ alone. And unlike the system of Rome, which is a false gospel dependent upon man's efforts, this actually produces peace with God in your life. God actually saves people. You can speak of having been saved and having peace with God now. As Paul said so clearly, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. By faith alone, sola fide. Let's pray. Well, Father, how do we thank you for a salvation so great as this? You have done it all. Were it left to the strength of our flesh, none of us could stand. Were we dependent upon developing our own righteousness, we would never stand before you as righteous. But you have given us the righteousness of your Son, in whom we stand. Thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for our salvation. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as